Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who has a vast collection of vintage DC and Marvel comic books, and ironically lives in Minnesota, where his favorite NBA team, the LA Lakers, originated, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. The next podcast guest has been on the show not one time, not two times, but now three times. He is the author of a book that we've talked about before in detail, Why Physician Home Loans Fail. He is someone that has been a real estate investor, shared with us a ton of wisdom in the season two or three episode. We'll make sure to link here in the show notes. His name is Josh Metal. Josh, welcome back to the show. Dave, it's great to be here, buddy. Thanks for inviting me back. I'm honored. Yeah, no, it's it's fun. I think it's uh, always a pleasure with me building relationships with people. And I think you are someone who constantly brings value and it's been a few years since we've done this. And so let's let's dive in, Josh. Tell me what's what's going on with you. I know, I think since the last time we spoke, you had your, your own brokerage company and then you joined forces with Fairway. So give us an, an update on what's going on there. Yeah, you nailed it. So we joined forces with Fairway Independent Mortgage Corporation about two and a half years ago. They're the number four or number five largest retail mortgage lender in the country. And when I came over, I was uh, kind of chartered with bringing their physician loan department and their medical professional loan department up a notch. So I'm the director of physician lending nationally. Over the last two and a half years, we've expanded that product to not only encompass MDs and DMD but also CRNA, physician assistants, um, nurse anesthetists, uh, and a few other uh, uh, DVM, doctors of veterinary medicine, and a few other, uh, other medical professionals as well. And really, you know, what we've determined and what we figured out is they have the same challenges, you know, um, long, long runway for education, unfortunately high student debt levels, And at the end of that runway, they really want to buy a home that they can enjoy and they have challenges at that moment. And that's where Mm -hmm. we step in and create solutions. So we've been working really hard on that. That's been about a 10 year endeavor for me. And then as you well know, you know, um, about 20 years ago, my mom, my wife and I, we all started buying rental properties and and apartment buildings and office buildings. And uh, that hasn't gone too bad either. Yeah, I can imagine in, in this environment, that's had to go pretty, pretty darn good. And with your pregnant wife rule that we talked about last Yeah, week. that's right. If, the, if for anybody who hasn't listened to that podcast, if, if my pregnant wife couldn't go to the property at night, we weren't buying it. Very scientific, right? Well, <laughs> well I think what is, what is so cool about you in particular is that not only are you telling people, hey, to buy real estate, you're doing it yourself. And so, you know, putting, putting your money where, where your mouth is. Um, in any, I know you have the podcast as well, Physician Financial Success. Been keeping up with that much at all on, on that, that front? To be honest, not as much as we had before. We've really moved the, a lot of our efforts over towards YouTube and creating a lot of content uh, via writing and YouTube. 
And the podcast is just something that we have not put as much energy in. But now that I'm on a podcast with you, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm, I'm regretful for that decision. I'm already having fun. <laughs> and well, there's no you, video, right? So we're not worried about how we look. It's no, just, no, not at all. I had trees in the background before you were looking at. <laughs> so um, definitely send, make sure to send me those YouTube links so we can share them with everyone so they can check out that and the blog stuff. Um, yeah. So, so Josh, right now, as we're talking, this is a crazy time period. It's, it's beginning of March, um, in, in, uh, 2020 and the coronavirus is a thing and, and interest rates have been crashing. The 10 year treasury is below 1% right now. Um, awesome time that I would think to, to look at re refinancing. I know even for myself and my wife, we have a relatively small mortgage of like 170, 180,000 left. And I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I should think about a 15 year. I think our 30 year is like at three and three quarters. Never thought I'd be talking about refinancing this thing again. What's, uh, <laughs> what's, what's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just start at the beginning. You know, it, it, for those families and, and, and folks that are impacted with the coronavirus, our heart goes out to them. It is, uh, it's going to be an interesting time for our country, I think, over the next couple of months. You know, as we start to get testing available for this virus, I think that the number of cases in the U.S. is, you know, the reported cases are going to skyrocket. Um, our company just canceled their um, chairman's club trip. They, they punted till the end of the year. They just canceled another senior vice president's trip. So I think we're going to see more and more corporations putting off gatherings, not as much flying, not as much going to movies and malls and public events. And so I do think that this is going to have a bit of a sh what I think is going to be a short term, but I do think this is going to be something that's going to add stress to the stock market in 2020 as businesses kind of decelerate a little bit. Hopefully we get over that and, and, and pick things back up towards the end of the year. But on the bright side, you know, the, the upside with that money moving, at least in the short term out of the stock market and people being a little more cautious is money is moving, institutional big money is moving into the bond market. And so as money flows into the bond market and people have greater demand for things like the 10-year treasury, which is kind of like, you know, like the, the, the gold standard of what people track in the bond market. And, and that's a 10-year government issued debt. And then of course, mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities is another segment of the bond market. You think of it as borrowing money for a mortgage, but Wall Street thinks of it as investing in a bond that's going to pay them a fixed rate of return. And of course, those returns are paid by you making your mortgage payment. So mm -hmm. as money moves into the bond market, demand increases the rate of interest that has to be paid to those buyers of the bond goes down. And so as you said right now, the 10-year treasury, if you loan the U.S. government $100,000 for 10 years, they're going to pay you uh, $960 a year in interest, 0.96%. It's like insane, right? 10 years. You're locked ten, in. 10 years, and, and you're only getting $962 a year in interest. It's it, uh, net fees, whatever you paid for fees to get into that transaction. Man. So, you know, it, it's, an, it's just a wacky world right now in regards to where the bond market is. And the opportunities to refinance are insanely great. 
Uh, now, on the downside, what I'm seeing, Dave, is clients asking the wrong question. They're thinking rate and not strategy. And that is something that I see clients that don't have discipline with what they're going to do with that savings actually cost themselves money by going to a lower interest rate. Now, now that's kind of funny, right? Mm. Let, me, let me tell you how that works. I'm actually working on a, on a, on a five-part uh, blog series, which I'll, I'll hopefully have done and get over to you pretty soon. And, and basically, you know, I've titled this uh, Five Reasons You Might Want to Refinance and it's now a good time. And when I go into this five reasons, the number one mistake that I see people making is, Dave, let, how far into your, are, into your mortgage are you? How many years in? I think probably six or seven, something like okay. that. So let's say that, let's say that you've got 23 years left on your mortgage just for argument's sake, could we? Right. Yep, I'm with you. And so if you refinance to a new 30-year fixed and you go from 3.7, let's say we get you down to 3.25, you save a half a point on interest, you got $170,000 loan amount. So we're going to save you 850 bucks a month in interest, or excuse me, a year in interest. Mm -hmm. uh, not a massive mover, but probably worth the cost over a, over a long-term period if you think you're going to be there long-term. But here's where people go wrong. And here's where they don't think through what's called the amortization table. And if you look at an amortization table, it has all the interest, you know, in the first, you pay the most amount of interest on that loan at month one and the least amount of interest on that loan on month 360, your last payment. Mm -hmm. And so you, my friend, have made your way a good portion through that kind of high interest, low principal amortization curve. And you're just entering into that higher, higher principal, lower interest portion of the curve. And so what I think would be a mistake, which I'm seeing most clients do, is they're saying, hey, Josh, what rate can you get me on a new 30-year fixed? Well, Dave, as you, and you so acutely uh, alluded to the fact that you're interested in a 15-year loan, and that was very wise of you, but most clients aren't thinking that. They're thinking, oh, great, I can save 200 bucks a month, sign me up. Well, here's what we show clients all the time, Dave. I've got a client that I'm working on right now, the loan's in front of me. They're going to save $248 a month. So over the next 10 years, after they cover their costs for the loan, they're going to save $7,238 in interest. Seems like a no-brainer. Sign me up, right? Hashtag winning. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what they're not thinking about. With their, uh, with their new loan, uh, uh, they're going to pay, or, or with their existing loan, excuse me, they would pay $88,000 in principal. So they're going to pay down their principal $88,000 over the next 10 years. Well, with the new loan, because they go to a new 30-year fixed, even though they're going to a lower interest rate, they're only going to pay $63,000 in principal. So, so yes, they saved $7,200 in interest, but they lost $25,000 in equity because they started over in that amortization chart. So at the end of 10 years, they actually end up $18,000 behind. Now, 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 that's, that's a great point. What if, so let's, I'll just come up with some numbers because I can't remember the ones you used. So let's say before they were paying $1,500 a month. Now they're paying $1,300 a month. And so that carries out the loan longer. What if they kept on paying $1,500 a month? Ha. Is that, 
Does that strategy still strategy, Dave? Yes, that's exactly right. So what we're showing clients is look, be intentional about your refinances, be intentional about what you're going to do with that money. So here's the, here's the three strategies that we're showing clients. Strategy number one is just like you alluded. Hey, you're going to save $248 a month. You're already comfortable with your current payment. You're on a 23 year payoff right now. If we refinance you down to 3.25 or 3.49 or whatever, and you keep making the same payment, you're going to pay that loan off in 14 years. You're going to pay that loan off nine years faster. And you're going to end up about a hundred and hundred plus thousand dollars ahead because you, you, instead of starting over in the amortization chart, you're, 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 you're staying ahead of it by adding more principal. So that's strategy. Number one, strategy. Number two is exactly what you just talked about, Dave. You just said, Hey, I'm thinking about refinancing my 3.75 30 year. I have 23 years left. Let's just go to that 15 year fix. Cause on a 15 year fix, I should be able to get 2.875 or 2.9. I'm not only cutting off, seven years of my loan, but I'm dropping my interest rate by three quarters of a point. Almost no way to lose in that equation. When I run those numbers for you, I bet we're going to save you, you know, $50,000, $60,000 in interest, and you probably only have a marginal increase in monthly payment to be very comfortable for you. That's mm -hmm. strategy number two. Mm -hmm. Strategy number three is a global debt analysis. Now, here, here's what I'm aware of. Interest rates as we record this right now, this moment, are at an all-time low in our country. Simultaneously, Americans have the highest amount of tappable equity. It's in the trillions of dollars range. Tappable equity is the difference between the average mortgage balance and 80% of the value of the home. Because let's say you owed, you know, uh, let's say you owed 60%, but you could tap equity up to 80%, that's 20% of what's called tappable equity. That's the largest it's ever been in the history of our country. While simultaneously, consumer debt, that's all debt that's not business or mortgage related, all that consumer debt, student loans, credit cards, cars, computers, all the rest of that stuff, that debt level's at an all-time high. So here's the real ninja strategy. Client bought their home really wisely right after the last crash seven years ago. Home's gone up 50, maybe 60% over that eight years. We see that all the time. The $400,000 home is worth almost $800,000. And simultaneously, they're making a $1,700 payment on their student loan still. They've got two cars at seven or 800 bucks a month. And darn it, we don't know really why, but they've had these two credit cards that maybe at one point were zero interest, and now they're paying higher interest rates on those credit cards. So here's the ninja move. You pull out that equity, you pay off all of that debt, and then you refocus that cash flow that was going, the 1700 bucks that was going to the student loans, the two automobiles, the, the consumer debt that you, you somehow you are no longer paying off monthly. Yes. You, you take those monthly payments, you put it back down on the on your mortgage, the new mortgage, and now you've eliminated that consumer debt. If you're disciplined enough to continue to make the same payment you were before, you will cut your mortgage cost in more in, in less than half. We we see it all the time. We call it a global debt analysis, and that's that's the real ninja move we're seeing a lot of physicians make right now. Nice, 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 nice. And possibly if you're refinancing like that, right? You could possibly have tax deductible debt now where it wasn't before. 
Yeah, and you know, the new tax logs get a little funky on, you know, if you're pulling cash out, is it tax deductible or is it not tax deductible? It's interesting. I've seen I've seen some clients take it different ways. So I would really say they need to talk to their, their CPA on that one, but it is possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, that was awesome. Definitely. I would recommend everyone re-listen to what you just heard because there are those three different strategies that you should be thinking about. So listen to this one more time to really hear what Josh has to say and definitely um, reach out with questions about that. Um, we'll definitely, Josh, have you give your info and we'll have it in the show notes as well in the, uh, the podcast episode. So uh, Josh, now I'd love to kind of transition in our last episode we did together that we alluded to a little bit earlier. We talked about uh, that you are a real estate investor and you have had different buildings of various sorts with the pregnant wife rule, figuring out where you want to go. Um, tell me a little bit more about how have you, you thought about it? I was, we're going to have another episode with Seth Williams from RE Tipster where Seth had owned some duplexes and he considers himself a long-term investor. He had bought this mm. stuff back in 09, 2010 mm. and he started looking around and originally he was just getting it for cash flow. He yeah. wasn't hoping he'd get any appreciation and now the assets have doubled or tripled from where he got it from. And so he said, you know what? I'm out. I, I am taking my chips off the table mm. and uh, I'm going to hold on to cash for the next year, year and a half. And, look for a different kind of, of opportunity. How are you thinking, you know, as a real estate investor with the stuff you have? Obviously there's opportunities with rates being so low to pick up stuff. Um, what are your thoughts, Josh, on, on your assets and, and how you're positioning yourself? Well, truth be known, Dave, I'm probably not as smart as that gentleman that you just mentioned. And <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds like he is gonna be pretty strategic in regards to how he you know, um, restructures where that and where that capital is going to go. And the challenge that I see is I just don't know what the future holds and I don't know what those future opportunities would be. Uh, you know, the model that I have seen working is this. I'm a fourth generation real estate investor, which means my, you know, four generations now in a row, uh, my kids hopefully will be five unless they blow it all and I die early. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the coming out of the Great Depression, what I watched my, my great-grandparents do is they, they owned a little piece of land. They had a landscaping business on that land. At the end of the landscaping business, they sold the business and then built an apartment building on the land. And that apartment building uh, grew and the debt went down and the appreciation went up and the cash flow went up. And it's like, hey, whether the market goes up, down, or sideways over long periods of time, you see rents go up, debt go down, and those properties appreciate. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like the the dumb guy's way to to get through retirement. I just know if, if I just keep making those payments every month and I'm able to cash flow, that was the word by you know, use cash flow is absolutely king. As long as I can cash flow. I really don't care what happens with those valuations because I know one day, Dave, those mortgages are going to be gone and I'm going to have, you know, just my management expense at that point. And then I'm going to be able to live forever. Hopefully I'm, I'm big into human longevity and taking care of myself. I'm going to be able to live for a very long time on the cash flow without ever touching the principal. So I look at our rental properties like I don't even own them. I'm simply a manager and it's my job to maximize their cash flow and, and reduce the amount of debt on those properties. 
between now and the date that, uh, that I die. And then those properties will become my children's properties. Hopefully we can put some boundaries around that so they do intelligent things with them. <laughs> and, and so that way I can live a very comfortable life into perpetuity for, for as long as God will have me on the planet. And I can do it without ever touching the principle. And, and that to me is just a very freeing thought that at the end of my runway, it's not a zero sum game in that now I'm hoping that I, I don't run out of money before I run out of life. You know, I want to feel like, hey, I can live forever because each year my cash flow goes up. I don't have any debt on these properties and I'm never tapping into that equity that I hope I'm able to pass on to my kids. No, I think, I think that's great. And that's very similar to in, in the equities market, the buy and hold and adjust strategy. Yes. Um, certainly you, you can make some changes to, to the assets. You know, some people will fix things up periodically and push up rents. Are you considering anything like that in this environment, you know, with some of the stuff that you have? Yeah. Well, what we're really looking at doing in this environment, Dave, is re restructuring that debt. You know, today we own about 125 doors and we own two office buildings. So I own a medical office building that's full of doctors and dentists and um, some pediatricians in there and some oral surgeons. Nice. And we've got a, a little part of our mortgage operation in that building. And then we own another building that houses the majority of our, our mortgage team. And so, and then we own some apartment buildings and single family homes and duplexes and an eightplex. And what we're doing is we're doing a, a global debt restructure on everything that we owe. So most, you know, in the commercial world, as you and I talked about before we jumped on the call, usually you're getting somewhere between a 20 and a 30 year amortization. That's the repayment schedule. And you're getting a fixed interest rate for either five, seven or 10 years. As luck would have it, all of my fixed periods are ending in 2020. And all oh. of my prepayment penalties are ending in between May and September of 2020. Mm. So we're going to go from our blended debt ratio, our blended debt rate between all those properties is right around 5.625%. We think we'll drop that down somewhere around three and a quarter on all that commercial debt. And that'll save us, you know, just a, just a tremendous amount. I mean, it'll save us millions and millions of dollars over the next 10 years. So, so that's really our strategy. And then, and then just to bring this full circle, Dave, my strategy from there is not going to be, okay, great. Now I'm stretching it out to a new 30 year loan. I've dropped from 5.75 down to three and a quarter. Now my strategy is not to spend that extra money. My strategy is to, is to, is to continue making that same payment we are right now, if we're every month humanly possible. And if we have a major capital expense one month or, or we're planning for one, then great, we can drop down to the minimum payment if we're going to reinvest that money somewhere else. But I think that this will take us, we've got about, a, um, I think our, our average is about 16 years on our whole portfolio until the loans are paid off. This should drop our payoff down below 10 years. Nice. I love it. Then yeah. it'll all be cash flow. Yeah. And, and I want to tell you one other story along, along the lines of long-term hold, because this was something that I, I recently discussed with a client and was just kind of a it was one of those aha moments, you know, maybe we're onto something, maybe, maybe going through all the trouble of managing properties is worth it. But the first commercial property we bought was an eight unit apartment building up on what's called Capitol Hill, right next to the Capitol building in downtown Salt Lake, kind of up above the downtown area on the, on the hill there. And when we bought that building, the average rent for a two bedroom, 800 square 
foot unit was $285 per unit. And if memory serves right, I think we paid something like $315,000 for that building. Well, fast forward about, uh, we're about 17, 18 years since we bought that building. We just re-rented the most recent unit for about $1,500 a month. I think it was $1,475 or $1,479 or something like that. So they've gone from $285 a month to $1,479 a month. And the building that we bought at, at $300,000 is now going to be worth, you know, over a million, a million two, a million three, something like that. But really, that's not the important thing. The important thing is the debt on the property has gone down. It's almost gone. And the uh, cat, the rents have gone up over fourfold over that, you know, nearly 20-year period. Wow. And, and that's what people don't think about, Dave. Here, I've never seen... I've never seen uh, somebody in finance do this calculation. You're buying your property now. You're going to rent it out for $1,000 a month. You're not going to retire for 25 or 30 years. Let's fast forward and assume a 3% compound increase in rents. Let's look at what those rents are at 30 years. It's absolutely astounding. If you look at you know, the amount of capital you would need to buy an investment property in year one, and then you look at your cash on cash return 30 years down the road, once your debt's gone and once that, that rent has continued to appreciate, your one year cash flow uh, calculation after covering all expenses is more than the down payment you needed 30 years ago. And I guess you could, you could think about that in the same way with you know, a low cost index funds. You know, it, it, it compounds, you have compound interest, but there's also such a thing as compounding rents. And very few people think through that. So um, those are awesome changes and wonderful things that, that have happened for, for you and your family. And I think the medical building is something newer from the last time we spoke. I don't remember you mentioning that last time. Have, no, it um, is. You're right. It's a, that was just a, a year-end 2019 uh, purchase of that building. Nice. So obviously, you're not afraid to deploy money in the current environment at all um, with rates being so low. Is your thought just every year try and buy something new every couple of years or how are you thinking about buying new assets? Yeah, well, first of all, when you look in the apartment space, I think that most assets are grossly overpriced. Just like you know, the gentleman that you mentioned that decided to sell into this market, I get it, right? He decided to sell because the prices were just ridiculous. Um, you know, when you're looking at institutional investors moving into commercial real estate and smaller and smaller real estate projects now, th their options are this, Dave. All right, I need a really safe play with this money. I'm going to put this 10 million bucks into a 10-year U.S. Treasury bill at point, right as we're speaking, 0.968% per year. Or I'm going to buy a couple of small real estate buildings or a big real estate building. And maybe I'm going to make you know, three or 4% per year. Yeah, I've got a little bit more risk, but really over time, is that medical office building probably gonna go down? Highly unlikely, and it's a decent return. So, so I think you're seeing a lot of money flow into apartments. You're seeing a decent amount of money come into even single family homes in some areas. Um, and the, the last kind of part of the market where, uh, where I don't think we've seen um, big time commercial investors come into the space seems to be office space and the office space seems to give me a decent multiple still and i especially like medical office space because most of the 
you know, pediatricians and oral surgeons and, and DMD that are in those buildings have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of equipment. And that equipment that's mounted to the floor and mounted to the roofs is yeah. really hard to move. Yeah, so, that's true. So, so, so it leads to long-term tenancies. So yeah, um, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a medical professional and you're renting space and you have the ability to, to buy your own space, I'd really encourage you to look into that. You can always partner with, with other physicians. Uh, but I, I think that's a, that's the space I'm most interested in buying new property right now. I love it. I, one area I'm interested in, but I, I'm not pulling the trigger on. I've, I've personally bought a lot of land and doing a lot of owner financing, which is leading to great cash flow mm -hmm. um, and some cash deals here. And there are lots of small real estate transactions for me to cut my teeth on. But what I, I'm interested in is self-storage, just because you don't have to deal with the uh, toilets and some of the, the tenant issues that um, people having to leave their house, you know, and stuff like that. So I'm personally interested in that as a space. Although right now I think it's a lot of the, the institutional money, at least for big facilities has kind of come in there. So it's compressed rates. Have you ever looked at that yourself? Ever interested in storage? You know, uh, we, I have just, I haven't seen one that has worked in, in on paper as I, as I, I don't know that business. And so I'm probably not quite as aggressive on my numbers. Uh, but the numbers that I've looked at in regards to the multiples of cost versus what their cash flow is, I, I think I think people have, as you alluded to, have identified that that is a great market and that's attracted a lot of buyers and it's really pushed up prices. So if you know the market, you know how to you know look at a building and go, yeah, but I can take those from 250 to you know 350 a month. Then I think there's probably great opportunity. I just don't quite have that eye, and so I haven't dipped my toe in it. Uh, if the if the multiples came down and the price was right, as you opened this segment about real estate, you know we talked about cash flow is king. Um, uh, by the way, Robert Kiyosaki, which I don't agree with everything he says, but he has such a great game called the cash flow quadrant. Have you ever played that game, Dave? I, I know the cash cash flow clock quadrant, but I've never played the game itself. It's such a fun game, and it, and it, it even does well with with children. I think there's a children edition. And basically, you know, what it, what it teaches you is that the, the goal, the, the end game is to get out of the rat race where your, your, your passive income cash flow exceeds your outgoing expenses. And you can do that on a high income. You can do that on a low income. It's not a function of income. It's a function of your savings rate. And as long as you've got a decent savings rate and then you're investing that in something that creates cash flow, you can get out of the rat race. And so, yes, I would be very interested in the storage space if I could figure out a decent return and it would be a decent cash flow. I just haven't found the right, the right opportunity there. I know. I, I think that's, that's all great advice. And I would be remiss um, if we didn't at least talk a little bit about the um, first time home buyers. We talked about refinancing. We talked about investing. But man, what a great time to lock in a crazy low interest rate for first time home buyers. Uh, Josh, what, what would you like to say about that? Maybe any changes that have happened with physician home loans you know, over the last uh, year or two? Well, let me first just speak to the, the number one fear when I talk to first time home buyers, and, and this is really largely this millennial segment of, uh, of ages, you know, the, the, the largest, as, as you look at the bell curve of millennials going through the demographic study, 
right now the largest segment of millennials are turning, I think it's, it's 32 or 33. And that coincides with the average age that people are having children right now. So you have all these millennials hitting this place where, you know, now you're starting to have a family. It, it, it would be great to have a home and a dog and a little more space for the kids to run around the backyard. And so a lot of these millennials, a large segment of our demographic are now coming to terms with buying a home for the first time. We're coming off of home ownership participation rates that are been their lowest in like 40 or 50 years. And now they've bottomed and it's starting to come back up as these millennials hit this age. And the, the number one concern and fear that I hear from these millennials is, look, I watched mom and dad uh, lose their job, lose their 401k, and then lose their house in the last crash. And so I feel more comfortable in an apartment and I feel more comfortable just putting my money in a checking and savings account and not really taking any risks. The problem is very few of us have enough income that we can invest in things that have zero rate of return and, and ever end up with a, with, a, with a comfortable retirement. So what I encourage them to look at is, look, you know, if, if you look at this real estate market today versus the real estate market that led to the Great Recession, we are actually at the exact opposite place we were then. Yes, it's true that home values today are at their all-time high. And yes, it was true that home values were at their all-time high before the last crash. But that doesn't, the, 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 the price of something doesn't speak to where we are in terms of supplier demand. And that's what led to the recession. It wasn't that prices were high. It was that there was way more supply than there was demand. So let me just chart that out for you. Before the Great Recession, the inventory in residential homes peaked above 11 months in inventory. That is a ton of inventory. That means that if there were no new homes coming to market, it would take 11 months of buyers to get through that inventory. And there's always new homes coming to market. So it, 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 that is a lot of inventory. A balanced market is considered six months of inventory. Six months of homes for sale, uh, um, based on the number of homes that are selling per month, a six month inventory is balanced. Well, today we're less than three months inventory. We're like 2.91 months inventory. Mm. So, so yes, nominal home prices are at an all time high today and they were at an all time high before the crash. But the, but why we're in the exact opposite is because the supply demand equation is inverse. The, the reason why they got to 11 months inventory is because mortgage banks lost their underwriting discipline. They made loans to anyone. If you could, you know, if, if, if you knew your name or could fog a mirror, uh, either one, you could get a loan. You didn't have to do both. Just one of those would get you a loan. And so that created all this fake demand. Everybody wanted to be a real estate investor. All the taxi drivers and waiters and waitresses all owned seven properties. And nobody was thinking about cash flow. They were just assuming that the home prices would go up forever. They would put a contract with a builder. Nine months later, they'd close. The home would go up 20% and they'd sell it. So when the bank started making liar loans, buyers came into the market and gave fake demand. That signaled the builders, we need to buy more land and build more homes. And when the credit dried up, nobody bought those homes and we had 11 months worth of inventory. That was the picture that led to the previous crash. Today, you have to have 
paycheck stubs, w, W-2s, bank statements, good credit score, ability to repay the loans, all of those things. So there's no liar loans. There's real buyers qualifying to buy these homes and the builders cannot keep up. They just can't build homes fast enough. We have less than three months supply, which is the lowest supply of homes we've had in 60 years. So the first thing I would say to a first time home buyer is, this is a very different market than your parents' real estate crash. You have integrity in the underwriting process, you have real qualified buyers, and you have a tremendous amount of demand for housing, which is why prices are at an all-time high. At the same time, you have the lowest interest rates in six decades, lowest interest rates we've seen in six decades. So even though prices are high, your mortgage payment is probably pretty darn affordable because those interest rates are gonna be, you know, three and a half percent or whatever. Yep. I think it's a great opportunity for those two reasons. I think we're gonna see continued appreciation and you're going to have a very probably reasonable payment. Now, somebody in San Francisco is gonna say, what the heck are you talking about? That's not reasonable. Well, I'm not speaking to, I'm not speaking to the, the million dollar plus. I'm talking about most areas of the country. Uh, most areas of the country, housing is relatively affordable for most medical professionals. Income. Well, I think it's, it's interesting. I just ran a, a quick calculation of an amortization schedule. And let's say you get a $300,000 mortgage at a 4% interest rate, which is you'd probably get lower than that even right now, right? Like three. So I'm just assuming four, you know, you're probably paying about $1,400 a month. Yeah. Now let's say rates end up rising, right? But prices are lower. Mm -hmm. So now let's say you have a $250,000 mortgage at 6%. Mm -hmm. um, now you're paying just about the same amount, if yep. not even higher. So the, it's, it can just be a wash, I guess, is my point for a personal residence. Um, when you, you look at this, this kind of situation uh, where maybe even home prices could drop, but if it's by 20% and, and rates maybe are higher than they are today by a percent or two, then it's all a wash anyhow, and it doesn't really matter. So, um, well, that, that's exactly right. And, and when you talk about homeowner affordability, unless you're paying cash, there's three components to affordability. There's the price of the home, which we know is at an all-time high. There is the rate of the mortgage, which we know is at an all-time low. And then there's your income, the borrower's income. And if you look at the average wage, and we're not even talking about medical professionals, I'm just talking average uh, wage nationally, wages are at an all-time high. Now, they haven't been growing insanely fast, but they've been growing at 2 or 3% a year. And so when you look at the, the, the fact that interest rates are at an all-time high and incomes are at an all-time high, most housing is pretty darn affordable. And back to your original question um, about first-time homebuyers, you know, the beautiful thing about being a medical professional, an MD, or, or some of those subspecialties that I mentioned, is that you can buy with lower down payments uh, between zero and 5% down, depending on a few factors. And you can do it with either no mortgage insurance or reduced mortgage insurance. Now mortgage insurance for those first time home buyers who don't know is a premium that most people have to pay to the bank to insure against them ever getting foreclosed upon or not being able to make their mortgage payments. If you're a medical professional and you have one of these qualifying designations, 
either the bank waives the mortgage insurance altogether, or in some cases, you'll have a drastically reduced mortgage insurance. Like we have a reduced mortgage insurance program where the rate's a little bit lower than the no mortgage insurance program. And the mortgage insurance factor is one third the mortgage insurance of, a, of an FHA loan. So, so as a medical professional, not only can you get in with lower down, but your cost because you avoid or minimize that mortgage insurance is much lower. And it even makes more sense for a medical professional than the conventional buyer to, to, to be a first time home buyer. Awesome. Well, I know, I know we're running short on time and you got to get going. And so I'm sure there's going to be people that have questions and want to talk and talk about refinancing and maybe looking at their first, first house or maybe just talking real estate. Um, what would be the best way, Josh, to get a hold of you and your team? Well, the first thing I would say is our website is fairwayphysicianhomeloans.com. Fairwayphysicianhomeloans.com. You could just Google Fairway Physician Home Loans as well. Uh, folks can also email me. My email is josh at joshmetal.com. That's J-O-S-H at J-O-S-H-M-E-T-T-L-E.com. And uh, happy to answer any questions. The last thing I would leave you with, Dave, is that, you know, the reason why most people refinance and don't get the advice around, you know, here's what it looks like if you make the same payment. Here's what it looks like if you go to a 20-year or a 15-year. Here's what it looks like if you do a global, if we do a global debt analysis and pay off these consumer bills and then redirect that money to pay down the new mortgage. The reason why most mortgage professionals don't give that advice, Dave, number one, they probably don't have the, the financial IQ to think through those pieces, but number two, they don't have the software. They don't have the technology. And one of the things that we empower our loan officers with is a technology to show in charts and graphs how to make this stuff just ridiculously simple to understand. So if anybody wants to go through that global debt analysis, we'd be happy to run them, just gather a little bit of information, run them through that program and show them how many years we can cut off their mortgage with a, with a better strategy. Nice. I love it. All right, my friends. Well, there you have it. Definitely reach out to Josh. We'll have lots of links in the show notes to go back to all kinds of stuff. So if you have any questions, definitely reach out to him and his team. Well, that wraps up the episode for today. Thank you again so much for joining us on the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.